Unchecked biases can negatively shape your company's work culture. Not hiring and promoting a more diverse workforce can lead to a toxic work environment with high turnover that can ultimately impact your company's bottom line. In this episode, we're discussing how to check for unconscious bias within the hiring and recruiting process. And we are thrilled to welcome Allison Doherty. Allison holds a doctoral degree in organizational development and education from Northeastern University. Her research focused on organizational change and institutional courage. Her expertise is in qualitative research and data analysis. Allison's research, Proactive versus Reactive, is a case study on organizational change and institutional courage. Allison is a human resources practitioner who has served in chief human resources roles, talent management, EEO, and employee relations. She currently serves as the interim vice president for HR at St. Joseph's University. Welcome, Allison. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Tanya. Me too. So let's just jump right in. Um, we have been hearing about bias uh, in the past few years, and it's really a hot topic. And so just really want to hear from you. Is this, is this a trend that's going to fade um, and pass away? Um, but kind of from your perspective in HR, what, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think in terms of bias, um, let's hope it's not a trend that's going to pass. I think, you know, embedding racial equity in particular into HR practices has um, come to the forefront during the pandemic. And I think it's been kind of a, you know, three different things that we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the, the recurring or dominant theme has been on race in the national discourse. We've seen disproportionate COVID deaths amongst um, Black, Native American, and Latinx populations. Um, we've seen this kind of chronic case of institutional racism that has been happening in the external environment with um, the, the death of people of color to uh, law enforcement in particular. And so I think it's caused many industries to look at their own practices, whether they be hiring, recruiting, or also uh, retention efforts, and how we look at how we truly embed racial equity into our workforce and into our talent development and talent management. So that is, you just said a lot of really important truths <laughs> um, of why this hopefully isn't a passing, that bias isn't a passing, passing phase, and the depth, I think, of how how it is in the fabric of our institutions, right? Um, and so when, it, when we're talking about, we're talking about bias, when we're talking about especially racial disparities, how, when you think of your role um, in HR in an organization, how do you address that? Because I think some people, I think most people, it feels so big, it feels so overwhelming. Um, and so how, how do we even start? So how do we even start to address bias when we're thinking about hiring people or interviewing people? Certainly. Um, proactivity is, is the best way. I think often, you know, unfortunately with many things, we tend to be a reactive society. There's um, compliance, equal opportunity uh, laws, the EEOC in terms of protecting individuals when they do have complaints against organizations. Um, but as an institution and from an HR standpoint in a VP of HR role, I, I don't want to have to react and produce documents and have depositions. So I want to be proactive. And so I think it comes with um, a lot of training and education and workshops and coaching um, 
But in those workshops, in that coaching, really, it requires many difficult conversations. And, you know, my, you mentioned my research and courage, and those, those conversations are courageous conversations. Um, and, and sometimes there may not be safety to have those conversations. So it's from an organizational standpoint, it's complex, but, you know, I'm constantly reminding my team and my colleagues that the more we can do before th something happens, the more we can prevent something from happening and, and from harming people. Because at the end of the day, human resources, I'd love to see the field really move to people and culture because it's about people and culture of an organization and the climate of an organization. You said something about um, needing to be able to have courageous conversations in order to really kind of remove bias, right, from hiring and, and recruiting. And, but you said it's not always safe to do so. Can you just say a little bit more about what you mean? Sure. Um, you know, I think something that we've seen over the last few years are many organizations put out mission and value statements around equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, and some of these statements are, are beautiful. And, and the challenge there is sometimes you come across this organizational incongruence. And that's a term, it's Harper and Hurtado in 2007 did this study in institutions of higher education and essentially said from, the, from its face, if you look at some of these organizations and institutions, they seem incredibly progressive with the language they're putting on their websites around racial equity, um, around diversity and inclusion. But in practice, they're not actually promoting diversity and inclusion. And that's a really dangerous place to be. Um, you know, I used an example recently um, at one of my employers, uh, my uh, colleague who, who left the organization was in a leadership role. Um, and didn't, you know, I, I was often uh, puzzled why she didn't uh, advocate for some changes in our processes. Sometimes we had people who were hiring and not following inclusive search and inclusive hiring practices. Um, and I pushed for some change and a colleague of mine said to me, wow, you're getting a lot done. And in processing that, I mean, I was getting a lot done because I was at a predominantly white institution and I was a, a white woman. Uh, who went to the institution. So I, you know, I kind of was the accepted, it, it, I, I hate to use that word, but the accepted uh, voice in that. Whereas my colleague who had left was a woman of color and, and Muslim at a religious institution that, that was not a Muslim institution. So I thought quite a bit and actually talked to her after the fact. And she, you know, she didn't really have the safety, the psychological safety or the safety and support of leadership to speak up. So, you know, I struggle because I love courage. I, my research is encouraged. I love to, you know, encourage and empower people to be bold and have that courage. But the reality is not everyone is always safe to do so. They may not be in a position to do so because someone needs a job and they're, they're worried about retaliation or something that may happen after the fact. So not having the psychological safety, like you mentioned, but also not having perhaps the career safety, the economic safety, like being that if you are not of a privileged group, which shifts depending on like, you know, to your point, Allison, um, the environments you're in, um, you need your job. <laughs> and so that puts people in a really kind of tenuous, tenuous place. And I, I'm really kind of wanting to hear more 
your awareness of your own privilege as a white woman being part of the majority at the institution that the risks you can take they're different right the way i'm hearing you talk about it is you didn't have the concern of losing your job um there might be an emotional risk with it but it sounded like weren't as worried about retaliation in the way perhaps the person you mentioned who, who left who has different identities um, and wasn't part of the majority uh, had to navigate different risks. Correct, definitely, 100%. And I think, you know, with, I made a decision um, several years ago just based on some experiences that I had um, involving an investigation um, of a claim of racial discrimination, I remember. Um, sitting you know with um with the situation and deciding I i'm gonna do the right thing and sometimes doing the right thing puts you at risk of of job loss um and for me and i have a family and i need to work mm -hmm. i have options to fall on for consulting and other pieces so i've kind of i feel like career-wise i had this transformational moment several years ago when i was in this situation where i said I'm, I'm going to, you know, speak my truth um, and, you know, not to steal from the Be Real app that all the teens are now, but just be real about things and, and not worry uh, uh, about the risk. And I would love for all workforces to do that, but I know it's, it's just not a reality for everyone. So, um, you know, I think that that helps when I'm in leadership positions like I'm in now to do what I can to, to change culture. As, as much as possible and to move the culture to one um, where I, I think I see my role as an ally um, to move the culture where we where I'll ask a difficult question where I'll have a difficult conversation but also you know as you mentioned with privilege and being an ally doing so where I'm not rescuing and I think there's always that danger of swooping in and and you know being the rescuer and you know I really make it a point to check myself regularly and make sure I'm empowering those around me. Um, so tell me more, say more about um, not wanting to be a rescuer and what exactly you do to check in with yourself. So what does that mean to you being a rescuer that you're trying to avoid? Right, I, um, <laughs> you know, there was during, I was at another institution during um, the, you know, I think with, not being a rescuer, I think with an ally, you know, co coming in and taking away someone's power and control is is what I would view as as being a rescuer. So, um, I have a colleague where her her name is mispronounced in every phone conversation that we're in, and I checked in with her after the fact and said, you know, you you didn't respond. I was going to correct but I didn't know if it was appropriate for me to do so. How would you like me to manage that? I'm your supervisor. I, you know, you're being called the wrong name over and over again. <laughs> um, would you like me to correct her? And she said, no, actually, no, I, I'm gonna have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that person. How do you think they'll take it? And I said, actually, I think it would, they would receive it better from you than from me as your supervisor stepping in. However, if you ever need that support, I'm here to support you. So I think that's an example um, uh -huh. of, of empowering my colleague, checking in mm -hmm. and finding out, you know, how, how can I help navigate this? How can I, in my role, help work through this? 
Um, my biggest career fail from a, a standpoint of privilege was um, I was at an institution shortly after the pandemic started. And we made a decision to do some furloughs of some staff that we had that was um, not essential or actually could not do their work because of the shutdown. And in an evaluation, we actually learned based on unemployment and the extra incentives from unemployment that was happening during the pandemic that our employees might actually stand to, to make more uh -huh. um, and they could keep their health insurance. So we went through and went through all this planning and um, you know, it, it was going to result in I think 60 or 70 conversations. So I was coordinating with all of the people um, to have these conversations and I'll never forget it because it was May of 2020. And the day the conversations were scheduled for turned out to be the day after George Floyd was murdered. And we had the conversations and about halfway through the day and my HR team was, you know, people were drained anyway. I was in a conversation with, with a colleague of mine and I said, we, it was, um, it was a colleague of mine, a black male, uh, he, he was younger than me, um, a newer manager. So he was already anxious about having to talk to people about furloughs, even though we believed we were putting them in a better position. It, it's just, it's, it's tough it's conversation. It's so hard. And I said to him, Austin, I, I'm, I'm so sorry we did this today. We were talking about the news, we were exchanging, and he was talking about how it affected him as a black man. And it hit me and I said, Austin, I am so embarrassed of my privilege and I can't believe that we had these conversations. And, and, I, and he said, I, he said, he said, Allison, this is why we work well because you're not afraid to acknowledge that. You made a mistake and, you know, and it, it has stayed with me to be much more aware of, you know, moving so quickly, being so busy, having all this work, but really, being aware of what's going on in the external environment and how it affects your workforce. So, so not only in the recruit, but just being aware. And I remember openly in a leadership meeting saying, shame on us. You know, this was we, shame on us that we moved forward with these. We could have waited. Um, we should have given people time to process this. We should have offered some wellness events. We should have offered um, something for, for people to process and not had you know, and, and someone said, well, these conversations weren't necessarily bad, you know, the people are going to make more money. I said, right, but they're still, <laughs> they're still emotionally draining, and it's been an emotionally draining week. So, um, you know, I think, and, and I tell that story to highlight the importance of vulnerability from, from leaders and um, recognizing what, what you don't know and, and asking questions. Recognizing what you don't know, asking questions, being humble and able to apologize when you get it wrong, as opposed to trying to cover it up, <laughs> um, but just being like honest with yourself and others, right? To say like, this was wrong, right? I got it wrong. And I'm also struck, you know, I'm thinking of your role, you know, with your, the person you were supporting and also with the leadership. Um, being able to see him as a black man, right? Um, because if you didn't see him and recognize he has a different experience and perhaps is processing the death of George Floyd differently than you might be, you might not have ever come to realize that was a mistake. And so to your point, knowing what's kind of going on in the external world, 
and what's going on into in the external world as it relates to the people who report to you because that the experiences of the same event can be vastly vastly different um and you're you know you mentioned talking to leadership saying we should have had processing sessions we should have cared for our employees um and not just kind of moved along business as usual and so i i think what i'm pulling out of that something i i see that is often a missed opportunity for people managers is you said you know we're so in the go 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 get we have a checklist we have to get things done it's all about the kpis and then we forget the humanness of people and that if we don't care for the people as humans, the KPIs don't matter um, at all. I'm curious when you went to leadership, you gave one example of somebody saying, well, it you know, worked out better for them financially. Um, and I'm pulling back your privilege here, Allison, as a white woman going to leadership and correct if my, if my assumption is incorrect, that it was, was white, was leadership mainly white? Yes. Okay, um, so I'm just kind of curious as how, definitely feel free to say more of how they received it, but I think I'm really curious, Allison, what that was like for you to do. Were you nervous? Were you scared? Um, I'm just kind of curious how you, how you made the decision, because you could have talked to your colleague, you could have apologized to him, and it could have just stayed there, um, but you took it further. So I'm just kind of curious what made you do that and what that experience was like for you. Yeah, you know, what made me do it was just um, as an institution, we had some challenges with with climate. Um, I had, you know, I made it a point when I when I stepped into the chief human resources officer role in, in that at that institution, I made it a point to get to know faculty and staff and build relationships. And I worked very closely with our chief diversity officer who had been at the institution for, for many years. Um, and I think was in a position where um, she, she would meet people where they were at and was very good at meet, meeting people where they were at. Um, and I would ask a lot of questions that made people uncomfortable and she would offer praise for doing that and said, I really appreciate that support. You know, the fact that you're asking that question and it's not always coming from me is important. And so part of me did it and I actually checked with her and said, listen, I am going to bring this up with the leadership team. And she sat on the leadership team as well. Um, she was the only non-white person on the leadership team. And I said, what are your thoughts? And she said, no, absolutely. Um, and she actually said, I, I think we should do some sort of statement to the community, to our employees. And I said, that's, that's fine. I'll support whatever you want to do and what we can offer from our employee assistance program or anything of that nature. Um, I was, it was a culture where there was a lot of blame. So if you identified a problem and a solution, um, there were, it was fascinating to me because it was a lot of um, senior leaders who had been working at that place for two, three decades. And so this is the way it's always been, um, was a common statement said. Um, and, you know, when I raised it, immediately, um, the person that I worked most closely with put it right back. Well, well, you all pick the date, you all move forward. And I said, we did. And I'm raising our hand saying, this was our error. And I've talked with 
you know, my colleague, the chief diversity officer, and here are some ways that we want to move forward because we did this. We want to make a statement. We want to um, be transparent. We want to offer resources. Um, and so it was uncomfortable. And interestingly, I, I wasn't as, as I, I knew what, you know, blame was a common theme. I actually think it was more uncomfortable for them than for me because um, I just, uh, I, I tend to be very direct. Um, and, and so I, I think, uh, you know, a strength and weakness is often people don't wonder what I'm thinking. Um, so, and I, and I think at that point they, they knew. I, I, I'm, you know, very self-aware that sometimes when I'd walk in a room or say I have something to raise, they'd kind of do the eye roll, so. And the, the ability to be courageous. I don't, know if I, wanna, I don't know if I wanna say ability, but the decision to do it anyway, knowing the reaction you're gonna get um, is I think part of the true definition of an ally, right? It would be easier for you to stay quiet, but you were, right. you've made it clear, like you had um, kind of your personal stake in this um, to do right by, by people was a decision that you were gonna do even when it was uncomfortable. You know, you mentioned some of the responses, but this is the way it's always been. And I think, you know, whether an organization is, you know, 150 years old or 20 years old, um, I think that is not unusual that this is just how we do things. Um, and when we think about, you know, you said earlier that you wish HR would move to people and culture. Um, and so when we think about company culture and the culture organizations that want to embrace a culture that thrives with inclusion, that thrives with equity, which means diversity is necessary, those places can't do business as it's always been done before, right? There has to be a shift. And so I'm curious generationally, when we think of, are there, are there now four generations in the workforce right now, which is not, which just hasn't been common historically, right? Um, and so I'm just kind of curious what you see when you think about all of, all of the various perspectives um, working together and, and having differences of opinions. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. There was actually an article in, um, you know, we talk about retention and I know we're, we're talking about recruitment and retention a little in this with, with people management, you know, the last two places I've worked, the number one people reason people have left is flexibility. It's not the money. I think the assumption is always the money. And the money's in there. It's normally two or three, but flexibility is number one. And Time Magazine had this article of who doesn't want hybrid or remote work. And it was something like the white man or the white, the old white male executive doesn't want hybrid and remote work. And um, that has been proven somewhat of a reality, the places I've been, where it's been this kind of traditional roles, you know, going home to someone who's making the meals and, you know, tending to the children. And it has this whole, like, the, the whole uh, kind of tenor of that time article was like, that's where the white older male feels important. Um, and it was a little satirical, but I think some of it did capture in this article the the kind of culture that we're we're seeing, and so I think, you know, and I say that to um, 
you know, even you, you mentioned leadership when I shared my example, it was predominantly white. You know, I think we're moving and what we're seeing is shift. And I openly identify as Generation X, which I think is unfortunately the <laughs> second to last in the four that you mentioned in the workplace. Smallest generation. Yeah. I, and I've been, you know, in the, I, I tend to think we're the best, but, you know, when I look at, and I've, I've talked about, you know, issues involving um, I grew up in a predominantly white town, went through predominantly white education. And it wasn't until my experience in the nonprofit world when I was in my 20s um, that I actually became more aware and started to learn more and started to understand my privilege. And that's late now. I mean, I am, I am so in awe of Generation Z coming into the workplace. And, you know, I can say I had a colleague in my doctoral program who did work on the generations and research. And it was fascinating, right? We all have our criticism. You always criticize the generation you're not in. And I think with Gen Z, it's the phones. They have their phones on them. Um, but I am the demands of, of Gen Z and what they have learned and, and, and grown up with and, and seen, and, and some of it you know, has been un unfortunate, but I think it has translated into kind of this activism that, I mean, I, I always joke again as Gen X, I don't think I ever saw a protest or if people were apathetic, <laughs> just do everything. Um, I remember the Million Man March happened when I was in college and that was the only protest that I can actually recall from my kind of formative years. Whereas I think these students have seen like the, the protests after uh, George Floyd's murder, uh, the Women's March, like there has just been a tremendous amount of activism. And I think that has kind of trickled into the workforce in a really positive way where you know, you have people coming into the workforce and regardless of how, how they identify, regardless if they're white, Asian, Latinx, uh, Black, they are demanding a more diverse workforce, demanding inclusion, demanding certain things and kind of watching that play out. So pronouns, for example, pronouns and signature lines. I think some, you know, of um, the baby booter generation don't understand. And sometimes ask in a, in not an inquisitive way, in a vulnerable way, but ask in an offensive way. I know what you are. Why do you have to put that in your signature line? And so it's been from a people management standpoint, watching that play out um, is interesting sometimes for the better. And I think it, I think it has been changed, but I go back to your first question when we started this, when you said, you know, bias is a hot topic. Do you think it's here to say, is it a passing phase? It can't be a passing phase. I, there's no way an organization survives if it's a passing phase seeing this younger generation coming into the workforce because the majority of that generation from what I've seen um, is incredibly knowledgeable and, and demanding that there's more equity, more inclusion, more diversity in, in where they work. They want that. Which means that organizations are gonna be forced to change. I mean, I feel like to your point earlier through research, like there's the proactive organizations who are saying, okay, what do we need to do now? And that there will be the reactive ones where I'm guessing like five, five plus years from now, we'll be forced to start doing this because they're not going to get the top candidates, right? 
because they don't have the, the culture that people are desiring. So I'm curious, you know, to talk more a little bit, I think about specifics for people, managers and organizations who want to be proactive, <laughs> how can they recruit in a way that minimizes bias because we are human, right? But how can, how can people and organizations recruit in a way that minimizes bias and really starts to cultivate um, a diverse workforce? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, casting a wider net is important. You know, with the great resignation, I think something we learned very quickly are gone of the days of post and pray, where you would just post, you get a, you know, a strong candidate pool and you can move forward. And again, a lot of my experience has been in higher education, which have typically been coveted roles. And it's very challenging to fill roles, I, th I think, with, um, you know, and that may shift, but what we're seeing is it's a job seekers market. So in that piece, working with, and what I've done is I've worked with the committee to say, okay, how do we cast a wider net? What are the areas we're hiring in? Um, what, what are we looking for? And again, in higher ed, you're looking for faculty, but then you're also um, sometimes accountants, sometimes admissions uh, people. And there's different um, affinity groups. There's the PhD project, which is um, typically uh, doctoral students or newly, or students who recently received their doctorate degree um, who are from various back, backgrounds, Latinx, uh, Black, Asian, uh, typically non-white populations. And so there's an opportunity to post roles there to um, hopefully gain interest from diverse pools. I, I think, you know, that's one idea. And there's, there's other diversity websites where you can post jobs. Um, it shouldn't be the only, the only way, especially for a predominantly white organization. Um, it's really about building relationships and learning. So building collaborations with Chamber of Commerce, which often is going to associate with, with various groups, different LinkedIn groups. Um, in Philadelphia, there's the Philadelphia Association of Black Accountants. <coughs> so building those relationships, learning about different affinity groups, finding out if there are networking events, and it takes time. It means that your recruiters, that those who are responsible for hiring are going to have to kind of hit the road a little bit and um, build some relationships and um, share some information about your organization and invite um, people from different organizations and different, different affinity groups to, to different things. On a campus, it's easy because we have basketball games and we have speakers, so there are things we can invite to. Um, but for a corporation, you know, maybe there's, you know, a weekly education, educational session you do for 30 minutes on, you know, the third Thursday of the month and you invite different members of the community to that. So really kind of building those relationships so that you can do hires by referrals or you can actually post at um, places beyond the standard. I love your point of um, building relationships and that you can't, it is a job seekers market. And I think even, even if that, I mean, at some point that will, that will shift, right? Um, whether it's a job seekers market or not, if you're intentionally hiring, re intentionally recruiting and hiring people for the, the environment and culture you want, you have to be proactive, right? And so you have to, to your point, not just post, but you have to build relationships with people and organizations that historically have been overlooked and excluded to really be able to diversify your candidate pool. Um, 
I didn't know if you had any other suggestions in terms of recruitment before I ask you a bit about, about hiring. I think anything I would extend into hiring. So I'll let you ask your question first. So um, this before this kind of is the border of, of recruiting and hiring, but I was talking to um, I was talking to somebody, uh, a white man, and, and, and he was talking about how he had so much in tech, having so much trouble hiring um, gender diversity um, and realizing that all of the all of the candidates, most of the candidates, I should say, were, were male. Um, and it wasn't until he pushed back on the recruiters and decided not to interview anybody until there was a lot of gender diversity amongst the candidate pool because he was gonna interview somebody and like them and hire them. <laughs> and so in order to be fair, he needed to have a true representation um, of the available talent, which meant he had to wait longer because the recruiters had to do more work on their end because they were just kind of posting like you, like you said. And that small change on his part, he very quickly had a lot more gender diversity on his team because of his refusal to interview until he had a lot of different candidates to choose from. And so I'm just kind of curious to hear from your perspective how you can encourage people managers to wait, don't hire until we, until we give you more um, diversity. And also maybe even you had said, you know, is it just HR's role to have a diverse talent pool? Like when you're talking about building relationships, you know, is that something that people managers, of course it's HR's role or responsibility. I guess I don't want to say that, but as people managers, like what responsibilities do they have also in building those relationships so that they're sending great candidates to HR? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, I always encourage an inclusive search practice. So that means where you're posting, um, looking at where you're posting. I think it goes even before the inclusive search, like thinking about the job descriptions, how we write job descriptions, what we require. It's interesting because in higher education, many of the fields um, on campus require a master's degree. And that's kind of been historic to the organization. And so there's been a really dramatic shift. I know uh, Drexel University in Philadelphia, for example, has really kind of looked at jobs and say, what roles really need a master's or bachelor's for that matter? Do all of our administrative assistants really need master's degrees? Is that, um, is that ex required for experience of the job? Sometimes yes, sometimes sure. To be a, a faculty member, it's a PhD in, in, at most institutions is required to have that expertise. But I think looking at some of the staff roles and saying, how are we prohibiting people from applying just because of the minimum qualifications. You can always have a preferred qualification, but looking at the minimum qualifications, looking at the words that job descriptions are using. Um, you know, going back to the generation piece, our job descriptions, and I'm saying the collective are, I think as a society are just so long. So, you know, making position descriptions more concise, um, being more mindful of the words that are being used and, 
you know, are they, you know, typically some words like aggressive, analytical, or sometimes kind of male dominant words. So thinking of words that, you know, might from from your gender um, example, that might kind of draw um, some some more gender diversity. Um, and then thinking, I mean. The, the elephant in the room to all of this, after doing all of these inclusive search practices, building leadership, you know, not starting interview practices until there are a certain number of candidates in the pool. Um, the elephant in the room is sometimes word gets out. If there's an organization that I talked about organizational incongruence before that has really wonderful statements, but when someone looks around and says, are there inconsistencies between the rhetoric and the reality? That gets out. Someone has a bad experience at an organization there. They're going to tell their network and they're yes. going to say, you do not want to go to XYZ. So, you know, sometimes, you know, I think, like I said, the elephant in the room is there's some repair that needs to be done based on harm from people who may not even work at the company anymore. So I want to go back a little bit to um, the job descriptions, and then I want to come back to what you're just saying, this elephant in the room, because I think it's a huge, um, it's, it, I want to spend more time there. But with the job descriptions, and you're talking about, you know, writing it for the skills that are actually needed, not the pedigree, for example, because when you were saying it, Allison, I was thinking earlier, you were talking about, you know, the institutional racism that exists. And so if we're only looking at pedigree, if we're only looking at um, schools that have been attended, which schools are attended, what degrees have been uh, attained, that already is, is a biased approach because not everybody in this country has had equal access to right. um, the finances needed to attend like higher institutions, higher education institutions. Um, so I really like that point of, yes, there are some positions that need advanced degrees, but what actually does this job entail? <laughs> and is a degree required for it? Because if it's not, to your point, rewrite it in a way that focuses on the skills, um, not the pedigree. I think that's a huge, a huge point. I just wanted to kind of, kind of yeah. emphasize. Um, you talk about the elephant in the room of the uh, incongruency uh, and, you know, I think all organizations, Glassdoor um, <laughs> is not, is, it could be your friend, but it could not be your friend. So whether it's word of mouth um, sharing information or whether it's online of like this organization has a great statement, but working there has been not great for me uh, in terms of organizations getting those reputations. How, what can, organi what can organizations do to prevent that revolving door, right? So, so many organizations put in a lot of effort to recruit talent um, that is racially diverse, and then they see them leave within a year because it's not, it's not a welcoming environment. And so I'm really curious from kind of two, twofold, Allison, from a people management perspective, but then also from an HR policy um, perspective, what can organizations and people and leadership do to make the environment one where different kind of people want to stay, not just one kind of person? Yeah, I think, you know, one moving away from a standard HR term for many years was this fit, this whole notion of fit is the person a fit. 
Um, and I think there's just such a problem using that term because fit kind of indicates that you have to assimilate or adapt to the culture that you're in. So I think kind of taking that word out of your vocabulary, is this person a fit? And I think it's natural, unfortunately, for many people to kind of use that term. Um, going back to, again, the beginning, the proactivity versus the reactivity. So, you know, looking at exit interview data. So we, you have, um, I worked at an organization where we had fantastic exit interview data and nobody in leadership wanted to see it or know about it. And that is one of your best indicators of, the, of a climate. And even more important than exit interviews, this whole kind of trend of stay interviews. So talk to people throughout and, and it can be um, diverse employees or quite frankly, any employees at the institution taking a sample, a representative sample of your population and understanding why do people stay? What do they need to be successful? What do they like about um, the work? Um, what, can, what more can be done? Um, how can you, how can you uh, be better supported? Um, so using that data and helping it to inform kind of what's going on with the climate using it to address kind of challenges that uh, may be seen. There's such a value in employee resource groups. So um, at an institution, I've, I've worked in an institution where there was a resource group for black faculty. Um, and, you know, there was a resource group for, for women or, or working mothers um, and, and just various resource groups um, that can exist, that can support members of your community and also help kind of build that affinity within the campus um, and, and on the campus. Um, you know, and I think from an HR standpoint, being open to listen, to have the difficult conversations and, and to, to hear things. Uh, my experience at, at an institution I worked at was, um, once the floodgates open and, and um, colleagues of mine, diverse colleagues realized I was willing to listen, um, people came because again, word of mouth is just one of the um, strongest tools. And so when a faculty member came to me to talk about a tenure process that didn't seem appropriate and I was supportive and kind of helped with a path forward, um, then two more people came to see me, then more. So I think just being that trusted, unfortunately, people managers, HR, people culture, sometimes it has a negative connotation that, you know, you're the quote unquote company person, um, you know, realize, recognizing that being that company person means supporting employees, supporting the people, helping them navigate the system um, and, and kind of helping the, the organization uh, to be a better place. So I just want to I want to emphasize that because you you got the reputation of, of somebody who would who would listen, but you got the reputation of somebody who would take action, right? Listening is nice over lunch. Yeah, <laughs> sure. That's great, and we need that. We need that in the workplace. We we definitely do. But in terms of people we don't have relationships with starting to come to us, that's because you take action on behalf of the employee. So yes, you know, your role is looking out for the employee within the institution and the institution, right? Um, so I just wanna highlight that, that the role um, for HR, but also people managers is people want their managers to hear them and to see them and also to support them with actions. <laughs> when they're being treated unfairly, they want to know that their manager is going to 
even if the manager can't do it themselves, but like take them to HR and have HR take care of it. Um, but to have that action piece, I think is something that often gets missed when we talk about um, supporting employees. Yes, it's the emotional support. It's also the very tangible, actionable support. Yeah, and I think embed, you know, when we talk about embedding equity into HR practices and what, you know, many times um, when someone's come to me, it's not, you know, uh, this microaggression happened or, or this thing, this, you know, something that's potentially discriminatory happened. Um, it's not that they want someone fired. <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's, they just want some sort of accountability, some sense of accountability. And the thing I most commonly hear when it's, you know, when something, someone's coming with a report is, I just want them to learn or I want them to get education. I mean, it's so, and that's where I always, you know, those are the days sometimes I pull my hair out because the more proactive we are with workshops, with coaching, with education, with, you know, the, the connection, I, I know you know this, emotional intelligence and how much that is connected to all of this mm -hmm. um, is, is important. So I think when we talk about, and I know um, we're talking a little bit about recruiting and in the interview process, there's the unconscious bias training to not look at someone's resume and see they went to Harvard and have them immediately become your front runner. Um, but it's so much more than, you know, I think five, 10 years ago, it started to become a practice to have unconscious bias training. But if that's all you're doing, then in my mind, you're checking a box and it's, you know, you may as well say that box may also say we're failing, we're doing this, we're doing this training, but it's not all you have to have. It has to be coupled with coaching for leaders, for managers, for employees. It has to be coupled with um, just different, uh, you know, educating people around microaggressions, how to interrupt a microaggression, educating people on how to be an ally. Um, it's just, it's so important to have all those pieces kind of come together to build a comprehensive program where you are truly embedding um, equity into your HR practices. So that it is not checking a box and that it is, I think I wanna add it's education and action, right? You were making right. the point, they don't necessarily want their colleague to get fired, but they want the behavior to stop. <laughs> Right. They want to feel they want to feel comfortable at work. So if this person can stop touching my hair. Right. Great. <laughs> and wanting the institution to be and managers to be supportive of, of that happening. Um, what would be some other things that you think that HR and or people managers can do so that they're not just checking a box that they are on a very um, action oriented way with accountability. Um, creating environments that are inclusive, um, hiring people who contribute to that. I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, listen, if I think someone, if someone's listening to this and they're saying, okay, I want to take action, I don't know where to start. I would say asking yourself some questions, you know, and, and a couple of questions I would say is, um, can, can I identify, can we as an organization identify long-term, um, our long-term efforts to recruit, hire, and retain diverse employees? And if you can't name anything that you're doing in terms of training, in terms of, it's a place to start, okay? We can't, we can't, if, if you can't identify what those kind of long-term goals are or efforts to recruit, hire, and retain, then that's where you should start. And, and 
pull a kid committee together, start to look at some exit interview data if you have it and say, okay, um, what are we doing? Where are we posting? Look at for recruiting, where are we posting? How are we posting? We're only posting on Indeed. Okay, where else should we post? How else should we post? What's our hiring process look like? Is our hiring committee four white men or two white men and two white women? You know, we need to, what's our leadership look like? Let's take a look inward. Are we representative of um, the diversity we're looking to hire? And, and if you're not representative, then how do you kind of build a program, mentorship program or something to help kind of growth within the organization? Are there job families? Is there, are there career paths for employees? So I, I use the example of higher ed and looking at, okay, we're gonna try to, we're gonna take away some of the degree requirements for administrative assistance. Well, are there opportunities for them to, when someone comes in to get education and to move up through throughout it within the organization to a coordinator then a specialist and, and maybe an assistant director? Um, and then looking at, are there inconsistencies between our rhetoric, what we say, what the website says, um, and the reality of, um, of what we're doing. Um, so that's probably, the, that would be the area, those would be the areas that, that I would start with taking fit out of, um, out of what we're using, posting salaries, you know, being open, there are many places, the, the organization I work at now, we did not include salaries on job postings. And it's, you know, it, it I, I never understood why. Um, so making sure you're kind of open about what the salary is. And that also kind of promotes equity because, you know, sometimes there's a bias where someone will offer a woman lower than a man um, or someone who's not white, um, a, a lower salary than a white man or white woman. So, you know, making sure that you're promoting that kind of equity from a salary standpoint as well. The trans being so transparent, right, is is makes it a lot more accountable. And I think, you know, as you're talking, I was thinking, well, this is just how it's always been done. Um, and so rethinking how things have always been done, which has which has excluded people. Exactly. Right? And rethinking it and redoing it so that we can now include people. Um, and so as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, all the questions for people to consider that self-reflection is the first step. And then you take action, <laughs> right? That you, has, you reflect on what, what we've done, what we, we need to do, and then how do we take action to, to make it happen and, and build an accountability to make and it And I lasting. think some of, yeah, and an, an example I'll give, um, you know, sometimes you talked a little bit about skills and competencies, building job descriptions around skills and competencies, and then kind of tying that to performance. But being careful. So sometimes in performance management, I'll see, I, I worked at an institution where one of the kind of competencies that you were rated on was diversity, equity, and inclusion, which sounds great. But what people, 99% of the time people wrote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Allison appreciates all people and gets along with everyone. Well, that, that doesn't really, you know, just because I'm, I'm jovial or can get along with people, that doesn't mean that I fully, do I really grasp that? What so working, I know for me, um, and that's, you know, a lot of places are throwing that on their performance evaluations saying, okay, here, we're checking the box, we're looking at it, um, to really kind of having some, we've, I've done some HR workshops on how to kind of give feedback around this area. What are some things you could talk about? You could talk about training, you could talk about um, other pieces. 
one of the more, um, there's been some resistance, but I worked with the chief diversity officer before where we wanted to do an audit of every department and say, you know, what, what does representation look like? And that scared a lot of people. But then when we coupled it with, okay, we're going to do this audit, but then we're also going to offer you tools. So when we notice that you, you know, you're, you're not a represent, you're not representing the students that you serve or the population that you serve, how can we help you? How can we kind of build this out? And I'm not saying you have to fire all the white men or white women, but just, you know, your next hires, how can you build some relationships or build some connections with affinity groups to maybe, um, better serve the population. Because again, going back to the generations and I'll just use my example in, 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 in colleges, um, you know, my, the drum I've been banging lately is we are gonna get to a place where, you know, English is not going to be the primary language spoken in colleges. There are going to be students who speak other languages in colleges. And so starting to think of a workforce that is bilingual and bicultural and, and how to kind of build, build that up. I, I those are such important points that I think are really steeped in accountability because I think that's often what gets what gets missed. And so when you're creating um, goals and having metrics and holding people accountable for it, and I love your example of doing the audit, which yes, it is scary, but you know what? You know you now have truth that you can work with, and then you can support your people in developing the gaps that exist. To your point, like you don't fire everybody, but what is the plan going forward? And that is what you work toward, which you can then hold managers accountable to. And then people within the organization see that. And all of a sudden the narrative starts changing of like, oh, this is where we are, but this is their plan for five years. And people will be held accountable if they don't meet those goals in five years, then the reputation story starts, starts shifting. I have had such a, this has been so incredible, so incredibly rich. Um, you are like a wealth of, of knowledge, but I, I'm really, really grateful for your honesty about your mistakes, <laughs> how, you've, how you've learned from your mistakes, um, what you did with your mistakes. Um, and I appreciate the piece of, of how you take action. I think that's something that some, people managers, not just people managers. I think that's something that we all get stuck in. We don't know what to do. And so we don't do anything. Um, and I think you just gave some really concrete steps that people managers can take starting today, <laughs> whether it is start doing a stay, stay interviews, right? Go find time in your calendar and do at least 30 minute stay interviews, if not longer with everybody on your team to see why they like being here and what they would change. Um, but. This has been such a, a rich conversation. I'm just, I'm really, really grateful for your time and you sharing your expertise with us, Allison. I really am. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it being here and just will reiterate, it's not easy. I know you know that it's, it's not easy, but there are support, there is support within your institution if you look around or your organization, if you look around and there is support in the community and, you know, for people managers, I, I, I think I know Ladiba Group does work. I know um, SHRM, uh, different organizations that are, are very supportive of the work. So, you know, take care of the important thing for, for anyone listening is to take care of yourself because it, it can be exhausting work, but it helps people. And that's, um, you know, the most important thing. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Managing Well podcast. 
please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about today's topic, go to www.theladepogroup.com slash podcast for a worksheet on today's episode.